Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 90. We'll begin with a brief summation of Isaiah's chapters 1 through 3 and follow the consideration of celebrity goodwill making. We are beginning not only the book of Isaiah, a brand new book with a whole new sensibility, but Isaiah is also the first book in the latter prophets. And because Everett Fox and Robert Alter have only completed their translations of the former prophets, we're turning to an old reliable, an old favorite, the JPS translation of the Tanakh, appropriately named the JPS Hebrew-English Tanakh. I'll be referring to the JPS from here on out until chapter 36 in 2 Chronicles. Isaiah is the first book of the latter prophets, which includes Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve, an anthology of shorter prophetic works. In other words, the latter prophets consist of 15 prophetic hits from three major and 12 minor league players. The book of Isaiah is actually probably two books, maybe even three. Most scholars, even medieval commentators like Ibn Ezra, have noted that sometimes books named after a person weren't necessarily written by that person. Maybe they were even written by two people, or three, or four people, which is the case with Isaiah. From a thematic and linguistic perspective, Isaiah is clearly divided into two distinct parts. Part 1, which is chapters 1 through 39, actually consists of the prophecies of Yeshayahu ben Amotz, and part 2, chapters 40 through 61, are anonymous prophecies from a period about 200 years after the lifetime of Yeshayahu during the Babylonian exile, which is why most scholars refer to part 2 as Deutero-Isaiah. Some scholars subdivide part 2 even further, calling chapters 40 through 55 Deutero-Isaiah and chapters 56 through 61 suggesting a post-exile composition date as Trito-Isaiah. So as much as I'd emphasize the historical sweep of the first nine books of the Tanakh and how we might be going off-road for the next section, the book of Isaiah at the outset covers a lot of the same ground as 2 Kings, especially the fall of Israel at the hands of Assyria. Yeshayahu ben Amotz is identified in the first verse, but unlike Yirmiyahu or Yehezkel, God does not call Yeshayahu to become his prophet and spokesman until much later in the book. When the vision unfolded in the opening chapters, the words are Yeshayahu's, though he recounts them as if they are God's. This vision is rendered in high lyrical style, replete with metaphor, simile, and poetic repetition. The first eight verses describe Judah in its deteriorated state, a nation beset like a sick man, the land conquered by foreigners, its cities laid to waste. Verses 10 through 17 present a society satisfied with itself, drunk on its own plenty, decadent and lawless. Like Sodom and Amorah from the book of Genesis, and Ishao even makes that allusion directly. Judahite society is rife with theft and exploitation of the weak and powerless. This is a vision that is dark and angry and full of condemnation. Quote, Hear the word of the Lord, you chieftains of Sodom. Give ear to our God's instructions, you folk of Gomorrah. What need have I of all of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I am sated with burnt offerings of rams and suet of fatlings and blood of bulls, and I have no delight in lambs and he-goats. That you come to appear before me, who asked that of you? Trample my courts no more, bringing oblations is futile, incense is offensive to me. New moon and Shabbat proclaiming of solemnities, assemblies with iniquity I cannot abide. Here, Yeshayahu's target is ritual, but not because there's something wrong with near offering. One should bring a near offering if one sins. Did you hear that? If, not when. 
Ishayahu rails against the folks that will grind the face of the poor at 10 o'clock, near off or at 11, then go back to a little bit more stealing and defrauding before lunchtime. Who needs that kind of burnt offering? This is bullshit! Ishayahu has a simple cure. Quote, cease to do evil, learn to do good, devote yourself to justice, aid the wronged, uphold the rights of the orphan, defend the cause of the widow. And anything is possible if one repents, the crimson can turn snow white. But if the sinning continues, then disaster is inevitable. Chapter 1, in a sense, establishes a pattern we will see a lot in the book of Isaiah. Condemnation, punishment, and threats, followed by a promise that sin and punishment can be reversed. Chapter 2 also establishes a pattern. The stark juxtaposition of the elevated, the high, the heavenward, versus the low and bowed. So you'll find in the verse of chapter 2 allusions to mountains, peaks, hilltops, soaring towers, as well as to the low, the deep, and the hollows in the ground. There is also a vision of three distinct periods of time, the distant future, that is the end of days, the near future, and then the degradation of the near present. Again, there's that stark juxtaposition between the age of beating swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks, and the age when man will be humbled and brought low in the face of the Lord's terror and dread majesty. Oh, damn! We also get a sense of Ishayahu's take on idolatry. People do not worship idols because they are stupid. They do so because they are distanced from God and are too taken with their own achievements. When a man bows before an idol, what he is worshiping is himself, his own handiwork. Chapter 3 presents another stark vision of total breakdown and anarchy in Judahite society in Jerusalem. Whether this is a live broadcast or a prediction of what is to happen in light of what happened to Israel and its capital Samaria isn't really clear. This vision is constructed around nouns that describe the status of figures in Jerusalemite society. The verbs give a sense of jumble and chaos. So Yeshayahu mentions the hero, the warrior, the judge, the prophet, the magician, the older, the officer, the arrogant, the advisor, the wise man, the artisan, the enchanter, young people, teenagers, old people, brothers, fathers, cataloging the players in this chaotic tragedy. And then there is this persistent alliterative thrust, the persistent use of the letter Shin and Samech 38 times in eight verses, which strikes at the ear noisily. Yeshayahu makes another list cataloging clothing and jewelry at the end of the chapter as well. One can almost see it, how the Lord strips them all away. One by one, all the finery, starting with the anklets, the fillets, the crescents, the eardrops, the bracelets, the veils, the turbans, the armlets, the signet rings, the nose rings, the festive robes, the mantles, the shawls, the purses, the lace gowns, the linen vests, the kerchiefs and the capes. What's left after all of this? Nothing. Quote, Instead of perfume, there shall be rot, and instead of an apron, rope. Instead of a diadem of beaten work, a shorn head. Instead of a rich robe, a girding of sackcloth, a burn instead of beauty. Chapter 3 concludes with an equally bleak image, Jerusalem like a despondent woman mourning her men fallen in battle, her gates lamenting, empty, sitting on the ground in grief. Thus endeth the summation and beginneth the consideration. So my almost teenage daughter turns to me and says, when did World War II end? And I say August 15th, 1945, because I'm a bit of a history nerd. And, you know, the Japanese surrendering about a week after the U.S. dropped the second atomic bomb on Nagasaki. And she looks at me and she says, that's a pretty good run. I'm like, what? She says, yeah, you know, 70 years of no world wars. There, there was like 10 years between the first and second world war. And I was like, well, it's more like 22, but you get the point. 
It's a pretty good run. And that's one way of looking at it, considering how folks have regarded 2015 and 2016 as being terrible years filled with violence and mayhem. But if you actually look at the data since the end of World War II, there's been a dramatic drop in all the indicators that would indicate how bad things are. In other words, the world has never been better. This is the thesis of Steven Pinker's 2011 book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined. The number of war battle deaths by world region is down from a post-World War II high of almost 600,000 in 1949 to a little less than 17,000 in 2006. Malaria, a disease that purportedly killed half the people that ever lived, possibly, is killing less people than ever. Homicide rates in the developed world is also on the decline, as is the number of autocracies across the planet. For all the stats and bar graphs, I've included a link to the PRI piece on this tasty piece of optimism at thenextju.com. Pinker argues that these trends are due to five historical forces. Number one, the Leviathan, the modern nation state and judiciary with, quote, a monopoly on the legitimate use of force. This keeps people in line. Number two, commerce. Technology has made it possible to exchange goods and services over longer distances. Globalization and the internet has knit the planet together in a way that it has never been knit together before. Number three, feminization, meaning the increased respect for women. Number four, cosmopolitanism, that is the proliferation of literacy, mobility, and the internet, which exposes people to multiple perspectives unfiltered by elites and governments. And number five, what Pinker calls the escalator of reason. It's an intensifying application of knowledge and rationality to human affairs, which, quote, can force people to recognize the futility of cycles of violence and ramp down the privileging of their own interests over others and to reframe the violence as a problem to be solved rather than a contest to be won. That sounds to me like a lot of beating swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks, if you ask me. Pinker says that these historical forces have been in ascendance since the end of the Second World War, when the great powers and developed states kind of figured out that war isn't really very effective. This doesn't mean that there's no violence or conflict. America is far less safe and the world is far less stable than when Obama made the decision to put Hillary Clinton in charge of America's foreign policy. God, what an idiot. Anyway, uh, but wherever there is a rise in the uglier and more selfish manifestations of human behavior that tend to manifest themselves in the campaigns for certain presidents or prime ministers, whether it's, you know, I don't know, in the United States or the Philippines or France or Israel, there is an equal, if not greater, rise in intolerance for aggression, for violence against ethnic minorities, women, children, LGBTQ folks, and even animals. It's not acceptable to call me a nigger. It's not acceptable to call me a speck. To call me a chink. To call me a fag. It's not acceptable to call me a kike. Unacceptable! In other words, our world today, due to a lot of hard work by political leaders spurred on by the thankless grind of community activism and grassroots organizing, looks a lot more like the world where, quote, the many people shall go and say, come, let us go to the mount of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may instruct us in our ways and that we may walk in his path. It looks a lot more like that world than the world of rot and sackcloth and ruin. Okay, well, 
not literally, but you get the idea. And in these moments of coming together in a time of universal brotherhood and sisterhood of peace between nations, I think of the musicians from different genres and different bands with competing big hairstyles, setting their egos aside to work together for a common cause. For five months between December 1984 and April 1985, there was an outpouring of love and music on behalf of Ethiopian famine relief. And I gotta say that of all the benefit singles, the American one, the British one, the Hispanic one, the heavy metal one, the Canadian one, offered by the supergroup Northern Lights, was the best of them all. That's right, the Canadian one. Listen to this lineup. Gordon Lightfoot, Burton Cummings, Anne Murray, Joni Mitchell, Dan Hill, Neil Young, Brian Adams, Corey Hart, Bruce Coburn, Liberty Silver, Getty Lee from Rush, Mike Reno from Loverboy, and Oscar Peterson. And I didn't even mention that Paul Anka and Paul Schaefer were in the chorus. The lyrics reflect a very Canadian attitude toward politics and altruism. Quote, how can we look away because every single day we've got to help at any cost? We can bridge the distance. Only we can make the difference. Don't you know that tears are not enough? If we can pull together, we could change the world forever. Heaven knows that tears are not enough. It's up to me and you to make the dream come true. It's time to take our message everywhere. First, there's a very Canadian acknowledgement that we must do something and in a very understated way. We take on the challenge of helping others far away through careful planning, teamwork, and collective action. And well, the vocalists really enunciate clearly. That's very Canadian too, eh? And then of course, there's Neil Young. And the dumbest attempt to do some collective good, sad to say, was the song that launched a thousand songs, or at least five others. Band-Aids, Do They Know It's Christmas, released on December 3rd, 1984. Well, first of all, many Ethiopians do know it's Christmas, as about 60% of them are Christian. So I don't think they really need some British pop stars to remind them. And there are like 26 rivers in Africa and rainforests, and it even snows there too. Did you know that, Bob Geldof? But the worst bit of this song was the part that Bono sings. I'm sorry, wait, what what was that? Can we what? So yeah, tonight. Thank God it's them instead of you. Thanks, Ethiopian starving people. It could have been me. So thank you for skipping that meal for me and all of my mates. Well, Bono did us a kindness. And in the 2014 version released to fight the Ebola virus, he re-sang the line as follows. Well, tonight we'll reach in out and touch you. That's much better, but for me, the big question remains, can these examples of collective action where celebrities or musicians or movie stars or whoever, viners, YouTube stars, come together and set their egos aside to work on an issue for the common good, do they actually help? Well, 
first thing they got to do is work on setting aside that stereotype. You know, Band-Aid presented a worldview where Africans need our help because they can't do anything for themselves. They can't fight the famine for themselves. But why? Why can't they help themselves? Don't they know it's Christmas? The answer actually lies in something Nobel Prize winning economist Amartya Sen pointed out. Democracies don't have famines, but autocracies do. Sen wrote about how, for example, the 1943 Bengal famine killed millions. At, at that time, India was under British colonial rule, but since India became independent and established a multi-party democracy and a free press, no famines. Because in autocracies, the dictator doesn't really care about what happens to his people, and it's not like the media is going to report about the dire situation facing the population. So what Bob Geldof and his friends should really be singing about are the dictators and the autocrats and how well-meaning Brits should really work to remove them instead of prop them up like their governments continue to do throughout the 1980s. In the case of Ethiopia, though, the dictator was pro-Soviet Mengitsu Haile Mariam, so it could have been a Cold War win-win. They could have sung to have him removed and, you know, bring democracy and it could have been amazing, but but no. And when the Live Aid folks organized under the banner of Live Eight in 2005 to lobby the Group of Eight to increase foreign aid to Africa and address other poverty issues, they partnered with Meles Zenawi, the Prime Minister of Ethiopia at that time. Thing is that Zenawi had just come off of a highly disputed election in May 2005, which extended his time in power, which had begun in 1991, when his forces had overthrown the previous dictator, that's right, Mengitsu Haile Mariam. Bono, patron saint of celebrity causes, also appeared with Meles Zenawi in, in a May 18th, 2012 conference on food security in Africa on the eve of the 2012 G8 summit. So maybe when they wheel Bono's wheelchair to the mic for Live Aid 40, they might rectify the cozying up to dictators thing and smash the stereotype of helpless African thing, or maybe not. But at least the music will swell in all the right places. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, you should check out TanakhCast. Or like TanakhCast at the show pages on Facebook or Google+. Or write a brief review at the iTunes Store, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people find TanakhCast. Or if you want to help in a bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast and pledge your shekels, either on a one-time or monthly basis, and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that, and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 91, when we continue in the Book of Isaiah with chapters 4 through 7.